justice as, as a virtue. So it's, it's a habitus, which is to say it's also a perfection of the human person. Virtues, Aquinas says over and over again, if you read through his disputed questions on the virtues or anywhere else where he treats the virtues, he says that they make their possessors good and their work done well, right? So virtues enable you to do your work well, and what is the work proper to a human being? So that's one question you should bear in mind as I continue to reflect. What, is, what does one mean by the work of a human being? And they make you good, right? Now that's something that's familiar to you already, of course. Virtues make you good. So if, if we don't think of justice typically these days as a virtue, what do we think of it as? And what, what do you think of justice as? What comes to mind when you think of justice? I, I would suggest that for many of you, you think about law courts, or you think about um, the federal government or the state government, or you think about other institutions, and you might also think about certain kinds of advocacy, right, as in the term social justice, right? But we often don't think about justice as it the virtue of an individual, right? And, and um, there's nothing wrong, of course, with thinking about justice as attached to institutions. And there's a, there's a philosophical account that I could give for how we came to think of, of justice principally as attached to virtue. Some of you, no doubt, have heard of uh, John Rawls, a um, great American philosopher who argues that justice is the principal virtue of institutions, right? So it's a kind of societal thing. Um, he's not clear on what exactly a virtue is. Um, but still, we, we um, somehow found this to make its way into the dominant culture where, where um, whether you've read John Rawls or not, you tend not to think of justice as principally a perfection of a human being, but rather somebody else's job, right? You go to the court to receive justice. You um, have a conversation with your, your professor about a grade that you got. Something in your paper was overlooked, you think, and um, you're seeking justice. You think you're seeking redress. Um, and there are principles of justice that animate our conversations. And then if you think of this, this um, uh, kind of weaponized version of justice, that is in terms of the social justice warrior, right? You, you think of advocating for particular rights. And some of those rights might be consonant with the Catholic intellectual tradition, and some of them certainly are not. Um, but still, it's worth asking, you know, what, how did we get here? How do we think of justice in terms of advocating for particular rights? And I think a large part of the answer to that question has to do with the way we think about a human person, right? And I want to draw a little bit from the philosopher Alistair McIntyre, um, who I, I think Dr. Tolleson is teaching a course on this semester, I heard, as well as Dr. Uh, or Bernard Williams, is that right? Um, so in, in um, Alistair McIntyre, who's a uh, prolific Catholic moral philosopher, his latest book that came out in 2016, Ethics and the Conflicts, of modernity, he reflects upon um, what he calls morality, which if you've read G.E.M. Anscombe is not all that dissimilar to what she means by modern moral philosophy. 
There's a, a lot of similarity there. And the view of the human person that is um, connected to that. McIntyre thinks in terms of um, a dominant conception of what it is to be a human being as a uh, individualistic preference maximizer. Right? And that sounds perhaps a little peculiar, so let me break that down. A, um, an individualistic, well, he argues that the contemporary and modern conception of the human being as an individual is already, in large part, fictional. Right? That we are not fundamentally individuals, at least in the sense derived from John Locke and his heirs. That is to say, we don't begin our existence or our state of nature is not that of being simply by ourselves without community. Right? So Hobbes and then Locke and other thinkers argue that that is our natural state. And we enter into community by means of voluntary um, acts. Right? We choose to enter into community. McIntyre pushes very hard against that conception of the human being, but he recognizes its dominance in the way that, um, particularly in first world countries, we think about ourselves. We're individuals. We delight in our individuality. Right? And what are the, the conceptions of the goods that we ought to seek, which dominate our lives? Well, for many contemporary individuals, what one ought to seek is what one prefers. In fact, the, the view of a successful human life is wrapped up in a, a kind of perverted quest for more and more and more preference maximization, right? There's really no end to that which you prefer, right? And there's no necessary order to what you prefer. But your, your life is dedicated to achieving those things that you prefer. So this conception of what it is to be a human being is one that can't really make sense of Aristotle and Aquinas' conception of justice as a virtue. It just won't fit within this conception in large part because the, the very essence of justice, as Aristotle describes it in Book 5 of the Nicomachean Ethics, is that which is always another's good. Right? It's that virtue that perfects us insofar as we strive to promote the good of some other. Right? So it's a virtue that perfects us insofar as we achieve and promote good for others. Right? If you are an individualistic preference maximizer, that doesn't make sense. Right? Now, somebody might have a preference to do good for others, but they could wake up the next day and have a different set of preferences, and that would be their prerogative to pursue. So you don't find within this this particular um, conception of what it is to be a human being then, room, as I said, for what justice is. So let me say a little bit more about these, this notion of the individualistic preference maximizer. So this is somebody who um, thinks he himself to be independent and yet is 
as Augustine would readily recognize, right, tied to his passions in some significant way. There's not, there's not a horizon of pursuit that really extends beyond that which one desires and exercises a, a preference for. Right? So you should be asking yourself, and we can focus on this in the Q&A if you like, um, is it really the case that that's a dominant way of thinking about what it is to be a human being today? Right? Um, does it fit you? Does it fit um, those you know? Um, and McIntyre is not arguing so carelessly in this text to suggest that we're all perfectly fitted into this conception of what it is to be a human being. Um, rather, each of us is a denizen of uh, different conceptions of what it is to be a human being. But as more and more of the, the older community-grounded ways of living have fallen away, this has been the dominant alternative. Right? So you might think of, of the way you operate on the internet, where um, you click on those things that are your preferences. Right? And, and I would submit that the internet and social media in general is changing in fundamental ways the way we think about our humanity. Right? So you navigate the, the World Wide Web by clicking on your preferences, making your way through. You start navigating your actual life in a very similar manner. Or maybe um, the latter actually preceded the former um, and is part of the success of the internet. I don't know. Um, but you know, is, is this really the case? Is this the way that most people are living, a life in which they, they can't recognize certain fundamental goods. Uh, so part and parcel to this conception of, of the individualistic um, preference maximizer is the, the notion that there are no obligations that you bear simply because of your humanity. Right? Um, those obligations, those responsibilities that you come to bear are directly the result of your choices, right? So you choose to enter into a relationship, then you are obligated to care for your spouse or your children. Um, you choose in some way to, to live out the obligation um, to care for your, your parents, you might say, right? This starts to break down when you think about your parents or when you think about your siblings or you think about those who offered you your education in some fundamental way, those people who set you on your, your path, right? Um, but if you're a, an individualistic preference maximizer, you, you uh, find yourself not recognizing that there's a, a fundamental indebtedness that you have to those who provided care to you that orients your obligations, but this is rather a choice, right? Um, people say that sometimes. They say, well, that's fine for her, so long as it's her choice, right, or him, just so long as that's what he chose, right? Then it's okay. Right? Um, and choice, in that sense, is, I think, fitting this notion of a preference maximizer. Okay, so, contrasted with, with this conception of the human being as a preference maximizer is that, and I'll draw just one more time from, from McIntyre here, that of a dependent rational 
animal, right? You, you've probably heard of, of the definition of the human being as the rational animal. Um, that's a, a quite old one. And what one means by it, um, you can look in the politics and, and see the argument for yourself, is that one is rational insofar as one engages in speech. And in speech, one reflects upon the good and the bad, the just and the unjust, the expedient and the inexpedient. I'm just pulling from book one of Aristotle's politics here. Okay? So that's what it is to be rational. Aristotle also says in several places in his ethics that the human being, anthropos, man, is a, um, an arche of practicon. Right? He's a source of action, um, a, a starting point, fundamental starting point of action. And that, too, in Aristotle's uh, reflections, is caught up in what it means to be a rational animal. Okay? What McIntyre supplies in his book by that title, Dependent Rational Animals, Why Human Beings Need the Virtues, is a, a, a set of arguments that suggests that we've, we've overlooked, we being um, mainly philosophers, because um, most human beings seem to have gotten this right, but we overlook our dependency upon others. And in doing so, we've overlooked something fundamental to what it is to be a fully rational, in the sense of prudent, wise human being. And it's, it's a, a remarkable thing that we've overlooked this, given the fact that we all have come from mothers. We've all had people care for us for very long periods of time. And I was a parent of more than one child, I, that time can feel very, very long indeed. And you think, what's this kid going to stop using diapers? This is disgusting. Um, um, so, you know, somebody, somebody feeds us for years and changes our diapers. And um, uh, we're dependent upon those people, whether or not they were your parents. Somebody cared for you and brought you to adulthood. And if you're really fortunate, you'll end your long years of life with somebody feeding you and changing your diaper and moving you so that you don't get bed sores. Right? So our, our, our lives are um, encompassed on the two um, ends of it with profound care provided us by others. And um, in between, we often feel as though we're we're fully independent, particularly when you're, when you're a freshman or like a sophomore in college, right? That's where um, this, this sophomoric uh, term comes from, like a wise fool. You think you know it all. You're, you're fully your own woman, fully your own man. Uh, you don't need anyone else, right? So my, I have a son who's uh, 18 right now, and um, he's, he's, he's intelligent and... and Hardworking, um, but really stupid in some ways, um, right? Because I can see that he just thinks he is on top of everything, and, and um, he's not rebellious, but he's he, he's feeling he's feeling his his energy, his um, his independence, um, forgetting the fact that we're providing him with a bed and um, food and an education, and and you know, he's, he's he's working, um, and that's part of why he. Um, 
working part-time, part of why he feels such independence, right? And I'm sure you've had those feelings too, and they can be magnified. In fact, we can think that that's what life is all about, um, that kind of, of, of independence. But even in, in our most radical moments of independence, well, not only do we remain dependent upon others, if you reflect upon it at some length, but we also um, are somehow less than fully alive as human beings if we don't acknowledge the radical dependency that was at our origin and see that as an essential feature of what it is to be a human being now, right? Uh, because it's only by doing that that we can live out the kind of life that really is consonant with our flourishing as human beings. Okay, so think about that. There's, here's an Aristotelian principle for you. Well, one, one can only flourish as the sort of being one is. Right? You can only flourish as the sort of being you are. If you are an individual whose goals in life are to maximize your preferences, um, you will think of what it is to flourish in a, a fundamentally different way than if you are a dependent, rational animal, one who acknowledges your dependency upon others and recognizes it as part of your full humanity to exercise care and concern for others who um, come into your path, um, many of whom, whether or not you chose to care for them or enter into a relationship with them, right? Um, so you will have a very different conception of human flourishing if that is your view of what it is to be a human being. And I would submit that human beings are the latter, and it should be obvious to us as um, 21st century Americans, um, or those living in America, I don't want to presume, you're all Americans, my apologies for any non-Americans here, um, but, but uh, 21st century people um, spending a lot of time on college campuses should know better, and yet we, we delude ourselves quite a bit, and we fancy ourselves to be able to flourish as individuals who don't really need to exercise serious care for others to flourish, right? So exercising serious care for others in a kind of, of um, generous way is um, an important part of what, what justice is. I mean, um, a generous way. Uh, sometimes we can think of justice as a kind of unwilling yielding to another, right? Well, they're due. Yeah, I've got to be just. Um, but by doing so with a with a, um, uh, a generous spirit, a cheerful spirit, exercising justice for others, uh, that that can be seen as a perfection of a human being only if you acknowledge your uh, dependency upon others, uh, that you are a dependent, rational animal. So, getting one's anthropology right makes all the difference in the world, and. Um, this is much of the work that goes on in philosophy classrooms. Um, I know here there are several people who work extensively on uh, the question of you know, what is life, what is human nature, um, what is it to flourish as a human being, what are the fundamental goods of a human being. 
And um, there are competing answers to those questions, and it matters tremendously how you answer them, right? It matters tremendously in this sense. Uh, it will determine how you live your life, right? because you can't but want to flourish. Okay, so I've, I've talked a bit about what justice isn't and anthropology. I want to say a, a few things about what justice is. And I'm, I'm just going to crib from, from Aquinas here and um, define justice as a habitual perfection of the will by means of which we perpetually seek to render to each his good. Okay, so maybe I'll write that on the board. With this really great um, <laughs> lighting utensil. Okay, so justice is a, um, a habit or habitus. Um, so um, I'm going to say that that means a perfective habit of the will. Thank you. Became well. Arms. I've been graced with a <laughs> riding utensil. So, well, sorry, that's a dad joke. Uh, you have to appreciate puns uh, if you are around me very often. Okay, so justice is a um, a perfective habit of the will by which we render to each his due. So, Aquinas argues that each of the virtues are, are um, each virtue needs, so to speak, a, a home within the human person. Right? So, the virtue of courage is a perfection, a habitus, of the irascible appetite, that appetite by means of which we, we rise up in defense of what we love. And the virtue of uh, temperance is a perfection, a habitus of your concupiscible appetite, which is your, your appetite for things that are good and attractive and satisfying, um, completive of you. Um, and uh, I could go through um, a number of other virtues here, but what's fascinating about his account of the virtues is the care he takes to trace each of the virtues to particular powers of the human being. And justice is traced to the will as its, as its um, housing power, um, if you like. So justice principally is a perfection of our will. Our will, of course, is involved in every deliberative act. Uh, every act of a human being, it's, it um, justice is then potentially part of every action. I say potentially because, of course, we, we don't have to um, have this this virtue. Also, notice the the stress on the the habit here. Okay, so we sometimes fall into thinking of um, virtues in terms of their of their acts. Right, um, courage is not an action. Courage is a, it's a, a habit. Right? Justice is not 
an action. And you can, you can have a just act. That would be an act minimally that is the sort of act that a just person would perform. But it's possible for someone to perform a just action without, in fact, being in possession of the virtue of justice. In fact, that happens all the time. If your reason for doing just actions are to avoid the penalty of the law, right? well, as your, your principal motivation. Okay? So to have a virtue is to have a virtue. And the, the goal, obviously, is not simply to be or to have the virtues, but to act virtuously. But we want to act, we, we want to perform virtuous acts virtuously. I'm not trying to speak in riddles here. But the, the goal, one way of thinking about the goal of the moral life is to exercise the virtues, so to do those things that are in accord with the virtues from a virtuous character. Right? Well, we'll take people acting virtuously even if their character is not virtuous. That's a big improvement over the vicious. But, but our goal is to be both perfect, remember, Virtues perfect a human being and enable their work to be done well. Okay, so there, there are in, in Aquinas' account um, and Aristotle's account, I'll draw mainly from Aristotle's language in book five of the Nicomachean Ethics here. Um, a, there's, there's justice in the, the general sense. Okay, so... This is <clears throat> that virtue that enables one to um, always render to each his due. This is the, the virtue which is, in a certain sense, um, it requires the perfection of all the other virtues. Okay, so um, it's the, the crown of the virtues, Aristotle says, because if one has justice, then one also exercises temperance and courage and the other virtues that we sometimes think of as personal virtues. Well, the courage is both personal and, and, and political. Okay? So it's, it implies all the virtues. And um, this is distinct from two particular types of justice. Corrective justice, my writing is not very um, neat, it needs correction. And distributive justice, okay? So <clears throat> justice that's, that's exercised in order to repair wrongs done, that's corrective justice. And Justice, insofar as it's exercised, the virtue of justice, insofar as it's exercised to distribute goods um, properly. And Aristotle's thinking principally of, of honors within a city, right? Having a street named after you, having the, the Darla Moore Business School, right? That's, well, that will only cost you $70 million. And, um, and some other honorable actions. I learned at dinner, so I've never heard of. Darling more before, but um, but the the um, 
you know, that's, that's an honor bestowed upon someone for their, their great work and, and to act with, with um, magnificent generosity is a great work. So I, I think it's easier to think of uh, justice in these particular senses in the context of the family, right? So a mother or a father will um, correct a wrong. And I remember I was reading um, some philosophical text. I don't remember the text. I was in graduate school at the time, and we had our two oldest kids in the bathtub. And I was supposed to be watching them. Um, um, that's what my wife had assigned as my task. Um, and I was glancing at them on occasion and reading this book. And I, I happened to glance at them at this moment, probably because there was, there was a, a stirring in the water. But the, the three-year-old um, had just stolen some toy that the one-and-a-half-year-old was playing with. And the one-and-a-half-year-old stood up and bopped his brother on the head. And then sat back down, grabbed the toy, and his older brother was, was um, a little stunned. But I, I saw what looked to me like recognition of the appropriateness of his younger brother's action. Right? There was a, uh, a correction that was made. He had stolen a toy. Um, justice was rendered. Uh, parents dole out punishments um, of all different sorts. Right? And my wife and I like to get creative with, with our punishments sometimes. Uh, for instance, when we, um, when when siblings bicker, um, I tried this first about twelve years ago, um, and it, it's been very effective. Um, if there's persistent bickering and negative humor between a couple of siblings, then I, I have them compose poems that praise the the um, the talents and virtues of the sibling that they've been writing for a while. And that's onerous and painful, and somehow seems to, to fit the, the offense. Right? Um, so I'm sure your parents have similarly um, whimsical punishments sometimes, or just painful punishments. But this is all a matter of exercising justice within the home. And then the dis distribution of goods, um, of course, there are, there are the physical goods, um, um, food and shelter and so forth. But you know, giving praise where it's deserved and um, giving blame where it's deserved. Uh, praise and blame are, are principal tools in the, the toolbox of parents. And um, exercising praise and blame well is a matter of act, act, acting upon justice as a virtue. Okay, so... Like I said, this is a, a crash course on justice, and I'm happy to, to try to take on some other um, elements of it if it comes out in the Q&A. But now I, I want to talk about why one ought to strive to be just in the sense of justice as a virtue. And to do that, I want to talk about beauty for a little bit. Um, so I, I started thinking about um, this argument. I just finished a, a paper not so long ago. Um, because of uh, uh, I had a, a friend who was trying to put together a, a group of scholars to think about beauty in the tradition. And I had been working on the virtues for some years and um, had already written a few things on Aristotle's account of beauty. He says that, that um, every virtue is takalon, it's beautiful, fine, noble, 
and done for the sake of Takalon. It's so every virtue is beautiful and done for the sake of beauty. And um, that's that's certainly a, a notion that sounds very unfamiliar to our ears. What on earth could he mean by that? And uh, this is an idea that I think has some resonance also in um, Aquinas' reflections on the virtues. Um, it comes out especially in his treatment of bonum honestum, um, the, the honest good. And um, he reflects upon the connection of, um, the connection between the virtues and beauty. But I, uh, so I, I was thinking about this, but, but also thinking about beauty in some other senses as well, um, as, as a way in part to, to chase out what we means. If, if you've read Aristotle Rawl and he talks about um, doing something for its own sake, okay, I think that that's connected to this notion of beauty. Beauty has a kind of motivating power on its own. And why is that? So I've been thinking about that for a while. I don't know if my answers are, are good answers yet. You can tell me. Uh, but the paper's done and accepted, so uh, it might need to be revised. So Aquinas, if you just think of his, his three principles of beauty, he says that, that beauty is that which is um, it's, it's perfective or complete. It has a, a kind of, of right proportion. And a certain clarity or splendor to it. Okay? So that which is beautiful has these three features. It's perfective, or it's, it's got a certain perfection to it. And it's got a right proportion of parts to whole, and it's got this clarity or splendor. So by perfection, what, what he means is that the, the beautiful thing is, as it were, fully itself, okay? or nearly fully itself. So think of a, of a beautiful animal, maybe, a, a horse, right? or, or think of a, of a portrait. Well, that might be more helpful. So a beautiful portrait, um, it's, there's something complete, right? What, what's the purpose of a portrait? Well, it's not merely to do what a, a photograph does, right? A, a portrait is supposed to reveal the character of the person in the portrait, right? So there's a, a certain perfection that's achieved in a, in a beautiful portrait. The, the parts are proportionate to each other, so it, it conveys the, the person who's been painted in some um, proper way. Um, if you've read The Republic, you know, there's this discussion of, of beauty um, at a distance as opposed to close up in, um, what is that in, book, is that? beginning of book four, where Aristotle talks about the statue as being um, beautiful, but if you get too close, then it looks grotesque in some way, or uh, Socrates describes that. So anyways, um, beauty in that description, beauty in our portrait, it's a matter of, of the proportion of the parts to each other. And then there's a certain clarity or splendor 
right? The, the portrait communicates something about it. And I want to argue that part of what a beautiful thing communicates is a kind of, of um, uh, motivation to imitate, okay? Um, there's another platonic reference in the symposium by the, the priestess Diotima, who um, provides um, the, the account that becomes really the, the core of Socrates' account of beauty and love, um, argues that that which is beautiful is reproductive. Okay. So this certainly is the way beauty functions in the case of uh, animal attraction, right? Um, human attraction, uh, principally, if you think of uh, romantic attraction, right? Beauty wants to, to reproduce in a sense of, of children, but beauty strives for a kind of, of reproduction too in terms of, of um, conversations that you've had. You know, you're getting to know a, a beloved and you had a wonderful conversation. You want more. You want more of that sort of thing. Beauty has this kind of uh, imitative, reproductive power. And justice and each of the other virtues, I think, can be seen to, to fit this mystic account of the three elements of beauty. Insofar as justice is a perfection of a human being and puts him or her in right relation to others, and um, there's something that is inspiring about the just person, so that we are motivated to similarly be just. Okay? So beauty has a kind of, of um, motivation in and of itself that is, I would suggest, Infectious, if that's the right word. Um, and, and this is the case with, with each of the virtues. It's the case even with each virtuous action. We glimpse something that is worthy of reproduction in a generous action, a really honest action, particularly one that was difficult for the person to do. I mean, think of Think of the, the characters that you admire in novels you read or shows that you've watched, right? And you are inspired to go and do likewise. You want to be like those people. Right? So that's the, that's the power of beauty. And we tend to, to think of beauty in ways that um, isolate it to museums or to uh, uh, just romantic love, but I think it's far more pervasive than that. In fact, it's property of every being insofar as it's a being. Everything is beautiful, and this goes especially for um, the, the virtues. So, justice. We ought to strive to be just because it's beautiful, which is to say it's, it's worthy of... Um, Acquisition and action in and of itself. Okay? Second reason why we ought to strive to be just is that it promotes the common good. 
And um, we take responsi responsibility for ourselves and others by means of justice. That's to connect to the last two reasons why we ought to be just. The first of those last two being that we ought to be just because it's God-like. And the second of those last, or the third and the fourth, is that we ought to be just because it makes you happy. You're happy right now, listening to this talk, I'm sure. Um, and you're happier still when you act justly. So how, how is wanting to be God-like wrapped up with the virtue of justice and how can we argue that well, we ought to want to be godlike? There's a lot that could be said on that, and I won't try to say much of it at all. Um, but one doesn't have to be a Christian or a Catholic um, to recognize the, the goal of uh, wanting to be godlike. Right? Um, most religions recognize this as a, a goal. That is, one ought to strive to imitate God in some fashion. Even an old pagan like Aristotle um, built his ethics around one's efforts to strive to be godlike. Now, he's an interesting case insofar as his God is not just. Aristotle's God is not just. Um, and he doesn't love you. Um, you love him, and everything loves him, but but he's a, he's a special case. Um, at least Aristotle's God as we meet him in the Nicomachean Ethics. There is a passage in Book 7, Chapter 15 of the Eudemian Ethics in which Aristotle talks about God in, in terms of the measure of all of our, our moral actions. But I don't have to argue that, that um, one recognizes that God is just in order to argue that one ought to strive to be as godlike as possible. And if you have a conception of God that also recognizes God to be one who exercises justice, then you ought to strive to be just like God. So that's a very quick argument. And then the, the last reason, this is the reason that I, I really started with, Right? You ought to strive to be just because your happiness in the sense of human flourishing is dependent upon it. You ought to strive to be just like your life depends upon it, because it does. At least, well, it depends upon being just in the sense of justice as a virtue. 